Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Today is the first of three shows about the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. This one's called the Sixth Sixth Assessment Report, the Physical Science Basis for Climate Change. The report reviewed 14,000 scientific papers, handled more than 80,000 questions from experts, and was approved during a lengthy summit involving representatives of 195 national governments. The conclusions are neither new nor startling, but this report has landed with more of a thump than previous reports. Why is that? And what's in it that's had grabbed so much attention despite the wall-to-wall COVID coverage? Well, with me to to discuss the reports are Mark Dalder, the climate change reporter for Newsroom, and Dr Victoria Hatton, Director for Sustainability and Climate Change for PwC. Well, thank you both for joining me on a lockdown Friday. It's a pleasure, Vincent. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having us. Um, Mark, this is a big day for you because uh, we're recording on the Friday that the announcement, uh, uh, well, we're hoping that there's a change to lockdown four. So, and you're also the COVID reporter, pretty much, for Newsroom. Yeah, uh, and um, well, this one's been a bit different from the first lockdown in that we've sort of they've spaced out these announcements every couple of days, so it feels like. You know, every four days, I'm like, oh, it's decision day again. Um, and so far, it's just been stay in level four. But I guess we'll see uh, this afternoon whether that's still the case. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate your time. Uh, to the two biggest issues, um, very demanding beats. Well, let's yeah. stay with you, Mark, because I I think that um, you've done a very nice uh, write-up uh, of the report in Newsroom. And so... I feel like you could give us a 101 lesson in what is this report about and perhaps even start with the IPCC. I mean, those numbers that I just read out uh, from your story, it's all the more impressive for um, just the sheer scale of input into these reports. Does this make it probably, I don't know, the biggest kind of science scientific report of its kind? Um, I suppose I would say it, it's certainly the um, most thoroughly vetted, I would imagine, um, it, because it has to uh, essentially uh, receive the sign-off of all of the governments that are members of the IPCC, or at least the summary for policymakers does, um, and it essentially traverses all of the published climate science over the past seven or eight years. Um, and, you know, takes from that what everyone can agree on, uh, which is not always necessarily the, um, the most leading edge of the science, but it, it creates a consensus view of here is at least what we can all agree is happening. Uh, and if you read this latest report, what we can all agree is happening is um, pretty stark as is. Does that make it inherently a conservative document, given that there's so much consensus across so many different interest groups? I think it has to be somewhat conservative. I don't think that means that you can say it's watered down or anything like that, but it it means that, um, you know, when the IPCC says there's a 
you know, this this is very likely or that is uh, unequivocal or, or what have you, you can listen to that and, and take it as, uh, you know, as pretty much fact. Um, whereas if you have a, a single scientific paper that says something like that, you might have to go out and, and, and search for other evidence. But what the IPCC mm. has done is, you know, assess the bulk of the evidence and, and come up with what it thinks is sort of what it says is definitely happening, happening, what is pretty likely to be happening, what is likely. And it also has some uh, comments around what might be unlikely or, you know, possible, can't be ruled out, but probably not. All right. Well, cut to the chase and tell us what are the main conclusions of this report? Um, I think the way that I framed it or the way that I've been um, thinking about it, which has helped me, uh, is that, you know, climate change is real. It is unequivocally being caused by human activity. And by human activity, I mean the burning of fossil fuels. Um, it is uh, very bad. And some of the impacts of climate change will not be able to be reversed in, uh, you know, on a time scale of centuries to millennia. Um, and that how bad it gets is still up to us that we can change our behaviors and burn less fossil fuels, essentially, um, and end up with a future that is less dire uh, than sort of the worst predictions. Um, but again, you know, going back, there are certain impacts of climate change that are locked in due to our past behaviors and, and will, you know, continue to affect us for centuries, if not millennia to come. Excellent summary. Thank you, Mark. Um, the th one item that did surprise me was the assertion that climate change is unequivocally, unequivocally caused by human intervention. The surprising thing for me was that that had to be said out loud. Why has, why did that have to be said now? Um, and has that not been argued since the 1980s and even earlier? Why has that been so uh, confidently said now compared to, I don't know, previous reports and, um, and previous decades? Um, I think there's a mixture of things. Uh, part of it is, uh, my recollection was there's a there have been some methodological changes to make clear that actually the world has warmed by more than we had previously thought it had. Um, and you know, one of the things is just there is natural variability in global temperatures and in the global climate, um, and mm -hmm. at times that has masked the impact of global warming. But you know, the longer global warming goes on, the more clear the distinction, you know, the more clear its separation from that natural variability becomes. Um, and one of the things the IPCC did to come to this conclusion of, you know, unequivocal human impact or human influence was to, you know, run a, a number of models and see if they could reproduce past temperatures. Um, and, you know, some of these models would be just natural variation, and some of them would include what the expected human impact was. Um, mm. And, the natural variation shows some fluctuation in temperature, but never rising more than half a degree from the um, sort of pre-industrial average. Whereas the models of human uh, influence tracked extremely closely with what we have actually seen, which is now you know 1.2, maybe 1.3 degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels, um, you know, over the past uh, two couple centuries. Mm, um, interesting. So the models provide a counterfactual, 
and the and the models are now accurate enough that you could run quite an accurate reliable counterfactual to say well if we didn't release that many fossil fuels into the atmosphere over this period of time you would expect the range the temperature range to be within you know these uh, top and bottom uh, expectations yeah that's exactly right and um, the you know the in some parts of this report they rely less on models than they have in the past uh, and or sort of caveat the reliability of models a little bit more. So that's another way that we can, um, you know, take from this report that it is sort of the consensus and the authoritative uh, um, accounting of what is happening because they're careful about how they use models and the models they use are, there are many different ones devised by many different scientists in many different universities and labs around the world. Um, whereas, you know, again, with a single scientific paper, they might just run one model and there could be an error in there that, that produces an odd result. Um, mm. The other, going back to your question just a little bit earlier about what the previous conclusions have been around the impact of human uh, influence on, on the climate. Um, in the past uh, assessment report, uh, which I think came out in 2013, uh, I believe, uh, the conclusion was that, you know, much of the warming over the past 50 years is due to human uh, it's extremely likely, not unequivocal, but extremely likely. And before it was right. very likely. So it's not necessarily mm -hmm. a new conclusion, oh, humans are responsible for climate change. Um, but I, I think using the term unequivocal is just reiterating there is no debate about this. Even, even if you get all of these climate scientists all around the world together, there's no debate. Even if you get all the world governments together arguing over what's going to be in the summary for policymakers, they all signed off on on that line that human influences is unequivocally responsible for, you know, increases in temperature and uh, widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere, and biosphere. Hmm. Victoria, how has the report been received? My impression is that uh, it got quite a lot of press coverage internationally and here, despite the, you know, the ongoing rolling mall of COVID and Afghanistan. Is that impression correct? Has the report had the impact that it deserves? So um, I think I think you're right. I think it um, the press coverage has been really well received. <clears throat> and I think um, one of the things that we find with the IPCC reports is that they are um, they are used um, really, um, really well <clears throat> around the world. Excuse, excuse me for coughing. You're about to cough. <laughs> I've had a sore throat all week, and it's just it's just um, on the on the verge of uh, getting better. So I think um, I think what the the report does for the first time is it's provided a regional breakdown of the observed and projected changes, and I think that this has um, great relevance um, for governments around the world that they can pick up and for the first time see exactly what um, the impact of the proposed changes mm. that the report is saying has is having on um, on those particular regions and the governments um, and the impact that that might have, you know, over the next five or 10 years in terms of their climate change policies. And I think um, and I think that has been um, a particular relevance for not just sort of developed countries, but developing governments as well. Mm. Yes, that's interesting. We will dive into the um uh, what it has to say about New Zealand and, and Australia in a minute. But I'm curious to know how also this report would play into this upcoming 
COP26, which is the, uh, well, tell me about COP26, this large event that's planned in the UK and forms uh, another part, I suppose, the the decision-making part uh, of political commitments around um, uh, each nation's targets and agreements. How does this report inform those decisions? Um, Victoria, maybe I'd start with you. Yeah, so um, COP26 will happen at the beginning of November in the UK, um, so less than sort of 90 days away. And what happens is the um, IPCC reports generally get taken into the UNFCCC negotiating system and they get um, considered by the diplomats and negotiators that are attending. And they um, generally and largely in the past have been um, accepted and then become part of the um, UNFCCC negotiating mandate. Um, So countries agree that the outcomes that are written in the IPCC reports um, can be used to guide um, countries when they're setting their climate change policies. Hmm. So one of the things that we have to hope is that that happens again with this report um, and that um, countries will then be able to sort of um, take the new um, the new modelling using their SSPs and then incorporate them into their new net zero targets or NDC ones, um, which could change, um, I guess, the trajectory, the steepness of the of the curve that countries will then um, tackle their uh, emissions reductions. We could spend a whole uh, episode just talking about COP twenty six, and perhaps we will uh, at a later date. One of the uh, uh, I read about the um, outcomes of this report, or at least the conclusion of this report, is that 1.5 degrees is is largely now being given up as a realistic hope. Am I understanding that right, Mark? Has 1.5 above pre-industrial levels escaped us now? I think that the IPCC didn't find a scenario in which we didn't hit 1.5 degrees in the next uh, few decades. However, there were a couple of scenarios that they looked at which would involve us um, hitting 1.5 and then coming back down by the end of the century to 1.4 or so, or surpassing 1.5 and then returning down to 1.5 by the end of the century. Um, You know, we will hit 1.5 degrees of warming, but the the 2018 IPCC report, which looked at sort of specifically 1.5, said, look, there are a lot of scenarios where you can have a bit of overshoot of 1.5 briefly, but then come back down. And, and mm-hmm. uh, that can act similarly to just hitting 1.5 and, and not going over in the first place in terms of how the climate reacts, depending on, you know, how much you overshoot it by and how long you're, you're above 1.5 degrees for. Um, mm-hmm. but, but certainly there is an understanding that, um, you know, we're not just going to stop warming at 1.5 now. Um, And, yeah. Victoria, am I right in thinking that to achieve 1.5, there has to be not just a slowing or a stopping of emissions, but actually some sort of, uh, you know, spectacular success in carbon capture and storage uh, so that the the carbon that's already been kind of locked into the system, the CO2 that's already locked into the system through history, um, can start to be captured and reversed. And so those 1.5 or or lower expectations require some sort of technology that's yet to be commercially viable. 
Great question, Vincent. Um, I think the issue with the carbon capture and storage is that the technologies that we need to en enable this to happen just aren't quite there yet. So we know in theory that it, it could it could work. Um, we're yet to see whether the technologies can support it happening at scale. Um, mm. And you know what 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 happens in theory? There's lots of talk about the um, you know the carbon being um, captured and stored underground. Um, and what that would look like, you know, wh where are we going to capture this um, this carbon with these technologies, and what's going to happen? So there's still a lot of work, still a lot of work to do. Um, I think I saw something recently in the in the press this week about um, advances in that in that technology. So it's definitely a space worth watching. Mm. All right, so we're heading for a <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we're heading for a, a a world that is two degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels. What does that mean? Uh, can we explore uh, what the report says or, or summarise what the report says, what that means for, I don't know, let's start with New Zealand. Victoria, what are the implications for New Zealand in this um, in these next decades? So if you look at, um, this is where the sort of the regional analysis from, the, um, from this report really helps. Um, it gives quite a good indication as to what's likely to happen in New Zealand over coming decades. And really, we're going to experience a sort of a 1.1 to a 1.4 degree warming over the next 20 to 30 years and what mm. that might look like. Um, and I think, you know, we've already done some quite significant modelling um, through NIWA um, as to what that scenario looks like. And, uh, you know, we are likely to see sea levels rising. We're likely to see wetter, warmer temperatures um, down, the, um, down the west of the country. We're likely to see drier, um, hotter temperatures down the east um, with some, you know, implications for adaptation um, in those areas for dealing with um, severe weather events, whether that's droughts um, on the east or major floodings on the west. Um, sea level rise um, is, is largely sort of, um, it is modelled, but again, you know, the extent of, um, of the impact of those models is, is something yet that we don't quite know depending on the, um, the impact on the ice shelves elsewhere in the mm -hmm. world. Um, and, you know, looking, looking at the regional um, the regional impact is quite interesting. So there is, I don't know whether you've seen it, um, there's an interactive atlas that's come out for the first time with the IPCC report. Um, and you can go to the atlas and, and click on any country in the world to sort of pick out that regional in information and to really understand what the next 10 or 20 years would look like. And if you click on New Zealand, um, it gives you... Um, quite a good summary as to what the annual cycle might look like for rain um, and mm. drought. Yes. Mm. The the drought and uh, and rain are also going to affect uh, the extremes, aren't they? So the, the so the two degrees, or as we as we head towards two degrees towards the end of the century, the. As I understand it, it's the extremes that are really pushed. So. Um, uh, two degrees of you know it doesn't sound like much when you're lying on a beach somewhere uh, but tell me about the the extremes that are affected by this shift in temperature maybe mark you could um, describe that for us yeah um i think one of the uh interesting things about sort of this idea of extreme weather um 
And we've seen this conversation playing out over the past few months um, with, you know, the heat waves in the United States um, and the flooding uh, in almost every continent. Um, there's a perception of, you know, one degree of warming or two degrees of warming doesn't sound like that much, you know, to what extent do I notice the difference in temperature between 20 and 21 degrees if I go outside? Um, but by shifting the average, you also shift uh, the extremes. So suddenly something that is much less likely in the past becomes much more likely now. Um, you know, for example, and, and this is not necessarily a New Zealand specific figure from the IPCC report, but they found that um, a uh, one in 50 uh, year heat extreme event would now occur probably 39 times in 50 years. So uh, hmm. more or less, uh, what, four, four and five times. Um, there would be fewer years that don't have this extreme than do if warming were to hit four degrees. Um, if you manage to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, it's still 8.6 times in every 50 years. Uh, so about one and just a little bit less than one in five year event from a one in 50 year heat event, which, you know, is not the sort of thing that our infrastructure is generally built to deal with in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that sort of similar impact happens for, um, you know, flooding events, rain, droughts, um, in certain areas, wildfires as well. Um, all that sort of extreme uh, weather becomes not just a little bit more uh, likely as temperatures rise a little bit, but a lot more likely as temperatures rise a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And the fact that we are living with the consequences now, uh, you know, every day in one part of the world, there is what's described as an unprecedented weather event, unprecedented fire, uh, an unprecedented flood, um, that the word unprecedented is becoming a little bit uh, so uh, overused that uh, it's run out of meaning. And the way it was described to me, which I thought was quite good, was that what we are seeing now is at the lower end of uh, of the uh experiences that we will have in the next few decades so it's kind of like imagine the present only only worse that's what the that's what climate change starts to feel like so these extreme weather events we're seeing now uh, you, you're saying uh, um, just repeat that number mark is what was one in 50 is now 39 times within that 50 year period yeah that, that's if we hit warming of uh four degrees so probably Hopefully not what we're going to end up with. But, you know, two degrees of warming sees a one in 50 year event become more more than a one in five year event. Um, so uh, 10 times more common, or in this case, 14 times more common. And uh, we ins what that means is, um, you know, something that you may have seen once in a lifetime in terms of real people terms is now twice a decade. Um, hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And if, and if I can add to if I can add to that, sorry. The um, so if you think about the climate change, it just intensifies the water cycle. So there's more water available in the system, um, mm. and you know it does affect the rainfall patterns, especially over the subtropics, uh, where precipitation you know is likely to increase. Um, and with that, they um, the report is ex sort of says that extreme sea level events are likely to occur 
you know, that were once in 100 year events will happen every year by the end of the century under a four degree scenario, um, which is which is quite frightening if you think about um, sort of the high tide impact that we have on the West Coast here with the floods affecting um, in the likes of Buller and things like that. So much of what we've talked about is familiar. Uh, does the report talk about these unfamiliar experiences, so the so-called network effects of, uh, say, for instance, the the tundra in the Arctic being um, the permafrost being melted effectively in the release of uh, ancient uh, methane uh, or of uh, network effects around the Antarctic where melting is accelerating because um, with less ice there's less cooling and so on. Do, do those outer edges of uh, climate change get discussed in this report? Uh, they do, Vincent, yes. Um, so they are they are talked about, but the impact um, is talked about more in terms of the, um, I guess, the overall um, contribution to the the methane. So that's from the from the tundra. So they um, they talk about um, methane from uh, human induced, which is the um, you know the animal and agriculture um, methane, and then they talk about methane from uh, that's released from uh, wetlands and tundra, and also waste and landfills as well is is incorporated into that. But um, mm -hmm. they do they do explain that the I guess the the more intense the warming becomes, the the greater um, the impact is from the, the methane that gets released in those sort of outer edges. Um, and it's the same with the, I guess, with the glaciers and with the sea ice. Um, you know, the the glacier retreat um, has been, I mean, it's, you know, it's unprecedented since the 1950s, but it's getting faster. Um, and with that, more water is being released into the atmosphere and into the into the seas, and that just adds to that, um, I guess, that intensifying water cycle as well. Yeah, th there's been a lot of focus as well in, in recent years on sort of these tipping points um, in, in which you sort of hit something and uh, you can't reverse it, and perhaps it sets mm. off some sort of self-reinforcing cycle of climate change. Um, the IPCC report looks at some of these. Um, one of them that it takes a look at is the possibility of um, ice sheet collapse, essentially, uh, you know, due to the dynamics of a warming ocean underneath uh, an ice sheet, what might, and, and particularly looking at Antarctica, whether it's possible for uh, the ice sheet to begin melting and then not be able to stop melting, even if you bring temperatures down again. Um, mm. And they said, look, there's limited evidence for whether this would happen. We think it's not very likely, but if you're a policymaker trying to figure out, you know, how you plan for sea level rise, you kind of mm. want to take it into account because if it does happen, it could add, you know, 10 or 15 meters of sea level rise in, in, in a matter of centuries. Um, you know, it doesn't mean you have to plan for it definitely happening, but you want to have some awareness of this is still a possibility. Um, mm -hmm. and, and certainly they said, you know, we can't rule out something like a, an ice sheet okay. collapse scenario. Um, uh, just to go, going back, oh, sorry, Victoria, you carry on. Oh, no, I was just going to say, so actually the, um, just build it, just building on that, the report talks about um, these discernible um, increases in the intensity of uh, extreme events in a 0.5 degree 
sort of um, block of global warming. So with every half a degree, so we're currently at 1.1 degree of warming, um, likely to hit 1.5 degree in sort of the early 2030s. And with that sort of change of 0.4 to 0.5 degree of global warming, they, um, the report says that the, um, you know, the frequency of these extreme events will become more regular, um, especially in certain regions. And that's, um, I guess, that's around the subtropics. Um, you know, so we, we do have to be mindful that once we've hit that 0.5 degree warming in the 2030s, things will become way more intense. Hmm. Hmm. Um, just one more question about sea level rise. Uh, Mark, you wrote that um, even if we were to reverse the effects uh, of or reverse the amount of fossil fuels being uh, released into the atmosphere, uh, that sea level rise is locked in for not just decades, but hundreds, possibly even thousands of years. Can you explain that? Yeah, so there's there's been a lot of research around what happens when emissions stop, when you hit um, net zero emissions uh, and even net negative emissions. And it seems pretty clear that um, warming will slow and stop pretty quickly after you hit net zero emissions. Um, but a lot of the other processes that we're seeing with regard to climate change, like um, the melting of, of glaciers and uh, ice sheets, are delayed essentially you know uh, we emit in one year the world slowly grows warmer as a result of those emissions and as the world goes grows warmer things start to melt slowly so just as a result of sort of it, it's taking the climate time to catch up to the changes that we have um, caused the, the sea level rise will continue for certainly for centuries so trying to find the exact estimates, but uh, here, in, in a um, low emission scenario, by 2300, uh, sea levels will have risen between half a meter and three meters. Um, you know, that's, and, and that's the sort of thing that's pretty much locked in now, even in our best case scenario. In a mm. high emission scenario, it's between two meters and seven meters of sea level rise uh, by 2300. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's just that's just climate change to a certain extent you know it, we the we have been releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere at a faster rate uh, than any time in the past probably 66 million years of records um this this is my own research and not not the the ipcc report they have a sort of more um uh conservative assumption for how long that's that record is set for but still we're releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere at an extremely, extremely fast rate, and the world just can't uh, change that quickly. So those changes are locked in, but will take time to come through over the coming decades, centuries, millennia. It's really important to remember that this can be changed, right? Because if we start to talk about tipping points and network effects, and we focus on the um, quite serious implications for communities and for the biological world it is uh, overwhelming sometimes i was really struck by michael mann's book the new war on climate just how important it is to realize that we are still at a moment in history where we can make decisions and actually have an impact right so is there anything in this report that starts to set out uh, what can be done 
to speed up our shift to a low emissions, zero emissions, perhaps negative emissions world? Um, the So the way the IPCC works is every um, few years it comes out with an assessment report which sort of takes in the latest science. But those are broken up into three sort of mini reports. This is the first of them, and it's around the physical science basis for climate change. You know, how do we know it's yes. happening and what is happening? Um, mm -hmm. So the specifics will be coming in the next two reports, which are due next year, around um, you know what will the impacts be on people and uh, what can we do to mitigate it. But you know the report makes clear there are scenarios in which some of the worst impacts of climate change are mitigated, um, and those scenarios are are low emissions um, scenarios. Some of the the one point five degree scenarios that they have, or roughly 1.5 degree compliant scenarios, rely a lot on those net negative emissions that you were talking about earlier. Um, mm. So there, there, mm. does, there does have to be uh, some preparation or some, some figuring out of how are we going to be sucking vast amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere if we want to meet those sort of best scenarios. Um, and and mm -hmm. just on your sort of point of the overwhelming feeling of it, I think it's difficult to hold at the same time both the truth of climate change is happening and it is really bad and here's what it looks like and if we you know it is in our power to make sure it doesn't get worse or that much worse and, and it's yeah. you know it doesn't there's not a satisfactory sort of um answer there there's not a a, a a nice, nice way to tie it up, but it's just sort of holding those, <laughs> those complicated and conflicting truths at the same time. Uh, we're we're grown-ups, yeah. Mark. We can have two ideas in our head at the same time. It is it possible. feel like it sometimes. <laughs> Victoria, I, I, are you about to say? Yeah. So I, I think one of the things that the report um, really does try to show is that, um, you know, net zero does work. Um, and that's something that um, I'm, you know, really quite um, pleased that I've seen in this report is that um, ever increasing um, use of the term, you know, net zero CO2 emissions and um, and the urgency with which we need to set that net zero target. Um, so, you know, the, some of the authors have come out over the last couple of weeks and, um, and really said that the UK's net zero target, um, you know, 78% reductions on their 1990 tar on their 1990 levels is not is not strong enough it's not fast enough hmm. for a net for a net zero target um, and so therefore we need to actually get to net zero much quicker than we're currently proposing to get there but i think the term net zero and i think the use the use of that term is really quite um, it, it's quite easy for governments to to think about and to realize. Um, mm -hmm. So it almost demystifies um, sort of what what we need to do in order to uh, work at stabilizing or reducing those surface temperatures. And I think if we if we look to aim to get to net zero in the next sort of 20 to 30 years, that could actually help to stabilize those global temperatures. So mm -hmm. there are, you know, some things that we can take away now ahead of COP26 from this report while still waiting for the next two reports that will come out in 2022, giving us some of those, you know, practical mitigation um, options. But I think, you know, ahead of COT26, having that um, that kind of focus on net zero is really positive. Yeah. 
The big challenge for New Zealand, of course, is that the biggest or at least one of the biggest contributors to our greenhouse gas profile is methane related to our agricultural sector. This is a really difficult problem was identified in the report as um, as an urgent issue just because uh, methane is such a powerful uh, warming gas um, in the short term. We know that it degrades quite quickly, but in the short term it has a powerful effect. Mark, what is the what are the implications of the report's discussion of methane for New Zealand, um, given that we seem to show so little progress in this regard? Um, I think it I think it just reinforces trends that we were already seeing. There was the UN's global methane assessment released a few months ago that um, you know, made a similar point of cutting methane could lead to, could help us sort of in the short term, slow warming or uh, even reverse warming very briefly um, while we get the processes in place to begin cutting CO2. You know, CO2 is the main driver of climate change. Um, they released a, a helpful sort of chart and data set with this report that looked at mm-hmm. uh what gas is responsible for what and in sort of gross terms co2 is responsible for about 0.8 degrees of warming compared to methane responsible for about 0.5 since uh pre-industrial or or since the sort of 1850 to 1900 average um but uh sorry i've lost my train of thought ah here we go um so co2 is the the main contributor to warming but uh methane is more powerful in the short term, like you've said. So if we want to be able to do our best to not go too far over that 1.5 degree target, you know, to do that limited overshoot thing, then cutting methane makes that a lot easier to accomplish. Uh, Even if by cutting CO2 and then eventually going net negative, we would get to the same point in the end. Um, Mm. You know, methane warms the climate faster and likewise reducing methane emissions cools the climate faster than reducing CO2 Mm. emissions, which is, you know, CO2 is a cumulative problem, but methane is a sort of more of a real-time one, I suppose. Um, in, in terms of the implications from like a policy perspective, you know, it, it flags that we're going to face more pressure internationally to reduce methane emissions and to, to take them more seriously. Um, I don't know that it changes the calculus for anyone uh, in government or in the agricultural sector who, you know, are essentially locked into the positions that that they agreed on at, at the end of 2019 with Hewaka Ekonoa and how you find a way to price agricultural emissions and and locked into the targets in the Zero Carbon Act. Um, mm-hmm. I, I asked James Shaw, look, does this give you cause for rethinking the methane targets in the Zero Carbon Act? Um, and he sort of said, look, if that's what the Climate Change Commission wants us to do, we can talk about it then. But, um, you know, by, he, he says that's not that's not in his hands, uh, and and the whole point, I suppose, he says of the the zero carbon act is to set up that climate change commission and then follow their advice and and not be making mm. your own political calls based on on the latest IPCC report. Victoria, do you think that the report will and its focus on methane has implications for New Zealand? And do you agree, unfortunately, with Mark that uh, policy and uh, action will not change as a result? So one of the things that, and I completely agree with Mark actually, but um, and I guess I'm disappointed that the report hasn't um, said more about agriculture and methane emissions than it than it does. Um, 
it, it really is um, kind of almost silent on the on the problem. Um, mm. And I and I think that that um, does two things for New Zealand. You know, it it, it plays into the status quo that we currently have um, and the lack of urgency for dealing with methane emissions from agriculture, um, which you know is is you know quite right. We're we're dealing with this with the global. Um, you know, global issues. We're, we're dealing with it in the same way that the rest of the world is dealing with it, which is this um, sort of slower trajectory of, of reducing absolute emissions um, to sort of in line with that international obligation. But I think um, it'll be interesting to see whether methane is picked up in, in the subsequent reports to a greater or lesser degree. Um, and I think this is part of the problem with having you know, may, maybe a Eurocentric um, authorship on the report. Um, and get, going back to Mark's earlier point about, you know, this is um, a report that's built on consensus. Mm-hmm. So we, we have to realise that this is a negotiated report in some way by scientists. Um, and so the, the two extremes are moderated down to some degree. Hmm. Um, and, and what we end up with is, is a report that um, re- reflects that. But um, on the subject of, of methane, I just kind of wanted to highlight the issue of methane from waste management and landfills, which is something that we don't also tackle very well in New Zealand. But they're growing at a rate of um, a, a, an enormous rate, you know, since the 1970s. And the report kind of picks this up quite well, um, you know, that sort of current methane emissions from waste and landfills is 50% that of um, emissions from methane from agriculture and growing, whereas mm. emissions from agriculture are growing at a lesser rate. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's super interesting. It, yeah, how, how interesting. And uh, again, not something that is really on our agenda. No. Um, thanks for highlighting that. Um, as we go out, would you just reflect on your own personal reaction to the report, Victoria? When you read this, were there any, I don't know, did it change you? Did it motivate you more? Did it um, perhaps send you in the direction of the liquor cabinet? How did, how did you react when you, <laughs> as you've been reflecting on it over the last couple of weeks? Oh, I'm a, um, I'm a climate change optimist, Vincent. I've been working in climate change for about 12 years and I'm, I'm constantly optimistic that we will get to the point where we will all be on the same page and all feel the urgency around, you know, dealing w- with, um, with climate change from a, either a personal perspective or from a, you know, a global um, mm. all, of, all of government perspective. But I think, I think what I take away from this is that um, climate change, we can't look at it anymore as being a future event. We have to we have to think about it that it's happening now. You know, we're seeing the increasing um, extreme weather events happening around the world, and I think um, you know my key takeaway is that we need to not only plan for the future and the scenario of the 2030s, 2040s, and 2050s, but we actually have to prepare for now. And I think net zero um, is a really interesting way of trying to deal with that now. Um, you know, setting clear net zero targets that are in the near term. And finding, um, you know, good strategies and good reduction um, opportunities to meet those really quickly. But, you know, um, I'm I'm holding out for COP26. Um, you know, I really want to see what comes out of COP26 and whether we can finalise the Paris Agreement rulebook and really get on with making things happen.
Mm-hmm. Oh, kia ora. Thank you for that. How about you, Mark? Um, you're swimming in a world of um, pandemics and climate change. Um, how are you keeping your chin up? Um, you need a I shoulder say- rub. I would say that I'm a uh, an optimist as well. I'm an optimist from a global perspective more than a New Zealand one, though. I'm less optimistic that necessarily New Zealand will do everything it could or should be doing um, to reduce emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think reading the report, and I had an embargoed copy, so I was reading it before it came out. Um, it It was sort of... Not unexpected, I guess. You know, there were there were no surprises there in terms of the conclusions, um, but it was sort of powerful in how it put them. My biggest reaction overall to sort of the report and its release has been seeing the lack of cut through it has had from a media perspective. Um, mm-hmm. So. You know, I work in the press gallery in Parliament, and the day after the report released was all about climate change. But it was about climate change from, you know, questions uh, about climate change from people who may not necessarily understand climate change that well or know exactly what they're asking about. Um, the day after that, the big news story of the day was a painting of Winston Churchill and whether it should be moved or not. So, um, you know, it, it was there for one day and then it was gone. And if yeah. This is a media question more than an, anything else. But, you know, if, if if we don't have dedicated climate reporters and, and, and if the media isn't able to continue highlighting climate change, which, like Victoria said, is not a future thing, it's a now thing, then, you know, it's hard to see how, you know, you get popular pressure for change or, you know, the government to, to feel like it has a mandate to, to act um, with, the, with the ambition required. Hmm. Well, thank goodness we have people like you and uh, Eloise Gibson uh, and Jamie Morton and others uh, doing the mahi on this. So uh, thanks for your hard work and thank you both uh, for joining me on the show, Victoria Hatton from PwC and Mark Dalder from Newsroom. Uh, We really appreciate your commitment and time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Kia ora. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.